Okay, we got some Russian magatize. Top Russian expert. Finally exposes Republican ties to Putin and burn the boats. And classical hybrid computing. Burn the boats. I'm Ken Harbaugh. Nice this is Burn the Boats, a show about making tough calls in tough times. America today faces a critical test. Our democracy is under threat. But good people are rising to the challenge. Now is the time to go all in. Now we burn the boats. My guest today is Olga Lautman, a researcher and analyst who has been monitoring Russian and Ukrainian internal politics for years. Mm -hmm. She's a senior fellow at the Center for European Policy Analysis and the co-host of The Kremlin File, a podcast that details the rise of Putin and the spread of authoritarianism across the globe. We had Olga on the show in March when the war in Ukraine had just begun, and I brought her back to talk about how the war has progressed and to hear what she thinks about the rise of authoritarianism here in the U.S. Olga, welcome back to Burn the Boats. Thank you so much for having me back. So we're talking as winter is setting in in Ukraine or has set in. It's a brutal one. A few months ago, Ukraine launched a, a massive counteroffensive before the snow came. It was hugely successful. But, but where do things stand now? Can you give us a quick update? Well, um, right now, Ukrainians are continuing their counteroffensive. It um, obviously has slowed um, because the weather is not exactly um, the most idle for a counteroffensive. Um, I think we will see more progress in the next few weeks as the ground freezes and it's easier for military equipment to move versus being stuck in mud right now. Um, the Russians, obviously, we've seen what they have shown us. You know, their military is more like a ragtag group of, like, <laughs> terrorist bandits. Um, they have zero logistics, zero organization. But what is the most frightening right now is that Russia is losing, losing on the military um, field and have now strategically turned into, you know, to terrorizing Ukrainian people and specifically targeting critical infrastructure, um, leaving Ukrainians without heat, power, water, electricity, you know, and everything that you need in the middle of winter as the temperature is plunging. You'll be traveling back to Ukraine in, in a month or so. Um, what is your assessment of of how successful they have been and are likely to be in either countering those attacks or getting that infrastructure back online quickly? Well, I mean, they've been doing a remarkable job trying to, you know, get the infrastructure back online within days after Russia strikes on the power plants. The problem is that the world needs to help and, you know, provide. I know that Europe and U.S. have been sending generators, but they need to send more because, I mean, can you imagine, you, you know how Kiev is. You have, you know, uh, apartment buildings where you have multiple flights of stairs. I mean, there are so many elderly people who have to, you know, climb upstairs with no power. You know, the elevators are down, obviously. And I mean, and then what's happening with, you know, the 
hospital situation. So Ukraine right now needs generators because Russia is not going to stop. I mean, they see this is working. They're trying to break the will of the people, which will never happen because, like I told you in March, and I'll remind you again, um, that this, uh, you know, is like now a century old, centuries old war. And we saw the last genocide by Stalin against Ukrainians, you know, in the late 30s. So this, uh, Ukrainians will fight. They will not, you know, turn against their government or their country because of electricity. But Russians at the same time are seeing, you know, the effect that's having that, you know, they can have maximum damage by targeting civilians and, you know, attempting to freeze them to death. And they will continue, you know, increasing their attacks. The West has begun to step up in terms of providing generators and fuel and that kind of thing. But what about defensive systems? What do you make of the, the decision to provide advanced anti-air uh, systems like the Patriot? Do you, uh, we've, we've talked about this before, but share your thoughts with with this audience on the the dangers of escalation versus the obligation to support Ukraine in its own defense. Well, I mean, the dangers of escalation is if we don't provide the weapons, because we all know that Russia, you know, has made it very clear that Ukraine is just, you know, their next stop and that, I mean, their current stop and that they have their sights set on re restoring, you know, the, their version of the Soviet Union. We saw how you, uh, Russia, you know, softly annexed Belarus and right now Lukashenko is basically, uh, you know, pondering to Putin and cannot exist in power without Putin. And that, what did they do? The minute they softly annexed it, you know, Ukrainians already for months are worried that there's going to be an offensive coming from Belarusian borders. So if Ukraine falls, you know, we will see such chaos in Europe. We will see World War Three that, you know, Russia likes to spread really break out in Europe if Russia is not stopped in Ukraine. And even in the midst of this counteroffensive, you see Russia still hasn't slowed down. And you saw, you know, this German coup plot by, by uh, a noble, uh, noble uh, for, uh, prince who, um, you know, wanted to overthrow the German government and, and basically cause an insurrection, overthrow the government and, and install you know, his version of, uh, I don't know, whatever kind of a uh, government that they were planning on. And they met with the Russians in the, the Russian consulate in Germany. So, I mean, Russia is still interfering in affairs. And, I mean, that sounds extremely familiar because this is exactly what happened here January 6th. And Russia continues to interfere in, you know, domestic affairs of European countries in U.S. And if they are not stopped and decisively defeated and humiliated in Ukraine, we will see this spread out. So this is something we should have done last year. I mean, Ukraine shouldn't be, you know, now, what, nine or close to ten months into Russia's genocide campaign where we are now beginning to, you know, say, oh, let's provide, you know, uh, uh, defense uh, missile systems. In, in the dead of winter now, with the tactical situation as it is, which side is is favored? I mean, the conventional wisdom, and you know, I'm saying this as a as a military person, is that 
the defender has the advantage. Uh, and in this case, ironically, the defender is is Russia trying to beat back the Ukrainian counteroffensive. But I think the conventional wisdom is being turned on its head by Ukrainian tactics, by the the utter um, collapse of Russian morale. What are you hearing from your Ukrainian family and friends about the reality on the ground with essentially trench warfare on the, the front lines in the east? Don't buy solar panels. Seriously, there is a very good reason why we're saying this. If you're thinking about buying solar panels, don't. The U.S. government will literally buy them for you if you take 60 seconds to answer a few questions below. Hi there. If you are a homeowner in America and you wouldn't mind saving a couple thousand dollars on your electricity bill this year, then you're really going to love what the U.S. government has just announced. You see, a few days ago, the U.S. government released a new stimulus program with the goal to encourage as many Americans as possible to go solar and that way contribute to a healthier planet. And they're giving away brand new solar panels and a Tesla Powerwall to ordinary Americans at no cost to you or your bank account. As they said, they'll even cover the cost of the installation. Plus, if that wasn't enough, you'll even be handed a $2,500 stimulus check on top of that. Which means today, in case you still haven't gone solar, you can get solar panels installed on your house without paying a single dollar whatsoever. And of course, $2,500 for being generous enough to accept that offer. Crazy right? And all you need to do to apply is take a short survey by clicking the button below this video and answer a few questions to see if you qualify. It takes only about 60 seconds in total. So, if you'd like to start saving thousands of dollars on your electricity bill every single year, and finally generate your own power instead of relying on the grid to keep your lights on, all while getting paid $2,500 to do so. Then click the button below this video and take a 60-second survey to see if you qualify before something gets in your way and the next thing you know. Your electricity bill got even higher and you just can't seem to find this video again because the program has already ended. Seriously, don't let that happen and click the button below this video to qualify for the program while it's still available. Would you believe that doing a simple five-minute trick just once a day can raise your credit scores into the 700s and even 800s range, no matter how low your scores might be now? It's true. And if you're one of the millions of Americans with a credit score lower than you deserve, or if you're thinking of someday owning that new car, new home, or building a better financial future for your family, you'll surely want to see this. You know, I implemented three simple steps for just five minutes each day, and it really raised my credit scores up high. Number one, I started tracking my scores and reports with all three major credit bureaus. I had no idea how quickly my scores could change in a month or even a week. Number two, I made a decision to take matters into my own hands. That's not to say I don't value these experts trying to help out people who are struggling. I just decided not to settle for a bunch of outdated and hopeless advice like just pay your bills on time and this is as good as it's going to get. I wanted my scores to go up, not just stay the same. 
Number three, I stopped listening to conventional credit wisdom and instead used a simple little known credit score trick to turn the game around in my favor. And boy, did it ever pay off. You know, I thought I took pretty good care of my credit overall, but I had no idea how one single credit mistake I'd been making ever since the day I swiped my first credit card was actually holding me back from the scores I truly deserved all these years. And within a matter of weeks after using this simple five-minute credit trick each day, I eliminated this one mistake and my scores went up, up, up. My credit limits increased and my financial flexibility and range of motion came back. You want to see what my one mistake was and this simple five-minute trick I used to fix it? Click the link below this video now and you can see the five-minute credit trick that finally turned my financial life around. I believe the information in that video can help all Americans learn how to raise their scores, just like it helped me. And I think it can help you too. Click the link below to watch now. God bless. Well, I mean, throughout Russia's latest campaign, and again, to remind your viewers, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. So now we're going into, what, uh, almost a nine-year war. But in their latest, you know, invasion in uh, 20, uh, in February of this year, you know, it was very evident that Russia was going to lose on the military field because Ukrainians, it is their land. They have no choice. They either fight to the last Ukrainian to secure their land and some kind of future for their children or grandchildren, or, you know, they just give up and go under Russian rule, which we've seen what Russia has done, you know, inside of Russia. They've turned it basically into a big gulag that you can't even, you know, speak freely without being jailed or attempted poisonings or, you know, all the other atrocities they're committing inside of Russia. So nobody wants this. And as far as on the Russian side, they basically, you know, Russia pulled out mercenaries basically from the poorest villages across Russia. They went there for money. They have zero morale. There's zero logistics. You see the breakdown even of communications from the beginning. And now it's even worse between Russian military and their generals um, because they feel abandoned. They're left without food. They're being sent. I mean, I, I because uh, there was a video last month floating around and I had to verify and sure enough it was true that um, uh, in a, one of the uh, people in a mobilization center, she told uh, the mobilized Russians, you know, that you have to like ask your wives and mothers for tampons to plug in bullet holes because we don't have first aid equipment. So, I mean, this is what the Russian military is dealing with, that they have no food, they have to buy their own, you know, first aid kits, which a lot of them don't have, their own uniforms, their own sleeping bags, and they don't even understand the purpose, because this is one sick regime, you know, that basically has, uh, you know, their sights set on reinstating the Soviet Union, so they don't have the high morale, there's no, you know, like, idealism like for instance during the soviet union where you know at least with the politburo they had you know the idealism of communism here it's just there's no idealistic values there's nothing there it's just a bunch of bandits 
all want to invade land and, and rob the land and kill the people on the land, and it's Ukraine, and then Moldova they've, uh, you know, hinted on, Kazakhstan they've threatened. I mean, they're constantly throwing out threats that, you know, uh, the countries are irrelevant. Even the Baltics, I mean, they've threatened the Baltics, like, oh, you know, these are fake countries set up. Uh, they're, uh, they belong to us. So, I mean... You see the difference. Ukrainians will fight. And I told you even back then that, you know, with or without help from the West, whether it's, you know, fighting with advanced weapons or broomsticks, they will fight for their land. They have no choice. And the Russians, I mean, they're just, you know, we see we see what happened on the field. Over the given, g- given all that, the, the total failure of Russia's military, the lack of a coherent message around why this, uh, air quotes, special operation is necessary. Mm-hmm. Why is Putin able to to hold on to, uh, well, I, I think the reasons he's able to stay in power are pretty clear. He's a authoritarian, but why is he broadly popular, at least outside of the big cities, if the polls are to be believed? Well, the polls, I wouldn't believe. I think with Russians, they're apolitical. They don't have an opinion. They don't care any way, you know, either way who's in power. And it's just, you know, it's just they're not a political society. They never have been, not under terrorism, not under the Soviet Union and communism, and not now. Um, they become concerned only when it affects them. And we saw when, you know, Putin announced the mobilization, how you saw Russians, I mean, 700,000 fled Russia. And you saw, you know, the rest, I mean, it's humiliating for Russia that, like, they had more mobilization police, you know, coming to pick up people on the mobilization list and, like, running around in circles, like, in the courtyard in Moscow, trying to capture them to, you know, be deployed. So, I mean, Putin is in power for now. I don't believe, uh, honestly, I don't see him staying in power. I do see him being overthrown from inside. And it's not going to be by the Russian people. I personally, you know, have, have become more and more convinced that it's going to be through the security services because they're the ones who installed them. And honestly, you know, when you pull back and look at Russia, yes, he has the power. Yes, he controls everything. But at the same time, it's a, it's a Czechist country. And for the past century, it's been controlled by security services. And I laughed because I remember looking even at the past Soviet leaders. I think six of them died in office. You know, and, and Gorbachev, basically, the Soviet Union collapsed under him. And there was uh, one more, I, I think, I, he got pushed out. And that was it. So I don't believe Putin will stay in power. But again, this is bigger than Putin. And this is the problem um, that I am. I think I'm the most concerned about. This is the system. And it's not Putin's system. This is a system that has been there for the past century. Until that system is broken, you will see more leaders like Stalin and Putin and Brezhnev and others be installed. And they're all cruel. And the cruelty comes from the top and goes to the bottom. Because you even see in, you know, with with military, it's not a military objective by Russia to go into Ukrainian homes, rape women, rape two-year-old children, cut their tongues out for refusing to say loyalty, you know, to Russia. 
It's, that's not a military objective. This is coming from something darker and deeper inside the society. And until that system is broken, we're not going to see any change. And my final thing on this, I've been trying to sound the alarm and give a warning. The biggest mistake we made after the Soviet Union collapsed was saying, oh, wonderful, we won the Cold War and flooding Russia with money in order to, you know, uh, set up their democracy. That money went to Russia's security services, to mafia, and to politicians who were under the control of both mafia and, and um, Russia's, uh, hey, called security services. So I hope that, you know, we realize that if Putin falls and his regime is overthrown, and, you know, FSB decides to play nice and put some, you know, new leader in place that uh, no one knows about and, and push again for this fake democracy, that we don't fall for it and immediately, you know, go back to business as usual and remove sanctions and, you know, and, and welcome Russia back to the West. Because there really have to be repercussions and changes made inside Russia. Uh, real changes and that system needs to be broken before you can see anything, you know, Russia moving forward in any kind of democratic way. I was down to talk to my doctor about Rebelsis. Ask your healthcare provider about Rebelsis today. How does that happen if, if you're indeed right and popular discontent is irrelevant? If it's the FSB, uh, which for our listeners is the inheritor of the, the KGB's legacy, and that gave birth to, to Putin in, in St. Petersburg. Uh, if they, mm -hmm. at, the, at the very top, are calling the shots and running the society, how does a, a popular movement gain any traction? I mean, it's striking to me that uh, Alexei Navalny has been, uh, I mean, they, they put him in prison and you hear no more mention of him. I mean, their ability to to squash public dissent is extraordinary. Yeah, no, absolutely. And honestly, to tell you the truth, look, I've wanted a free Russia for a very long time, but after the latest atrocities in Ukraine and the silence by the majority of the population, I, I think, you know, the policy from the West needs to be, they need to figure it out for themselves. We need to make sure that Russia is contained. We need to set very clear rules that you step out of, you know, one inch out of your border, that there will be immediate consequences. And that's it. And they need to figure it out because you know what? There are so many countries who actually do want a democracy, like Romania, like, you know, and people in Kazakhstan, people in Moldova, but are mired with corruption. I mean, our efforts would be better, you know, to secure the countries where the people actually want a democracy than to go and figure out, you know, Russia's centuries-old issue of not even understanding what democracy is. So I, I'm for... We need to put very clear rules, contain them, and put very clear rules that, you know, you step outside of your borders, there are huge consequences, and they need to figure it out for themselves. And when they get tired of their leadership or their system or whatever, there will be a revolution, and they will overthrow the system. But I don't think it's for us to be concerned. Our concern is to secure Europe, to secure 
United States, Canada, frankly, the whole world, and make sure that Russia's, you know, active measures are cut off and that their invasions and, you know, um, imperialist uh, ambitions are, are not allowed to flourish. What are those consequences that, that you speak of? And the calculation is, is fundamentally different with uh, nuclear power. Let's take as a, a potential scenario a Russian strike very close to the border, but just over in Poland to uh, a staging area for, say, Patriot batteries going into into Ukraine. I mean, clearly that's that's an overreach. That's Russia stepping outside of the, the boundaries we have drawn, that the international community has drawn. But when you're dealing with a nuclear power, what are the consequences for something like that? Well, we have to make sure that we devise very painful consequences. I don't know our nuclear protocol. I know that we do have, you know, certain levels. It's not if Russia launches a tactical nuke that we start firing on Moscow or St. Petersburg, that there are levels. First, we respond with conventional and then, you know, uh, escalate in that way. But we have to make sure, look, at the end of the day, we have to make sure there are consequences, make them clear. The Pentagon is excellent, you know, at devising plans and, and issuing, you know, uh, protocols of what can and can be done, what happens if you, um, you know, uh, hey, call it, do something like that where it goes into a NATO country. So, and we need to stick to these consequences. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is what needs to be done. And yes, Russia is a nuclear power, but you know what? Every analyst really needs to go and, you know, revisit their analysis over the past, you know, few decades because they also made Russia the largest, the second largest military in the world. And I laughed about it. And I mean, last year I was laughing. I even said on my podcast, I said, how could Russia's military be so powerful if they rob everything? I mean, literally, out of, you know, out of a million dollar contract, about 1,700,000 is going into people's pockets. Thank God for corruption in this case. And 200,000 actually goes to the contract. So my point is, we don't even know what's happening with Russia's nuclear arsenal. I'm sure if they're robbing the rest of the country, if the military, I mean, you would think that their defense ministry would at least make sure that, you know, they have an adequate military and that they have adequate uh, weapons. You know, they've threatened us with these hypersonics. Where are these hypersonics? Russia has thrown everything in the kitchen into Ukraine, and and we don't even see their advanced weapons that they put out, you know, their lovely propaganda videos over the past decade. So my point being is that, you know, we don't know what's happening with nuclear either. I mean, we don't know how much of it is working. We don't know, you know, obviously, I think, for instance, they could probably have enough to use a tactical nuclear weapon. But at the same time, we don't know how effective it is. And I even, you know, like people here, like analysts in, in January were like, you know, hiding under the bed in the United States, like, oh, my God, Russia's going to send a nuclear missile to U.S. I'm like, if they shoot a nuclear missile at us, like, that thing will go back into Siberia. Like that, they're, they're you know, they're, you see based off of the corruption that this is the status of what it is. So we need to have that. And we also have to have, honestly, rethink our international courts. 
and uh, stop prosecuting leaders and anyone, frankly, in the military and any kind of chain of command, you know, a decade or two decades later and hold people responsible, make sure that they know there are consequences. So people before even pushing a button understand that, you know, they're pushing a button that they will face repercussions. So I think we have, you know, to kind of, to, we have a lot of things to do, but that would be my two recommendations. Last year, you took us inside the mind of Vladimir Putin, and uh, I have to believe that in the year that has passed, his mindset has to have shifted. I mean, he thought this would be, he would be in Kiev in a couple days, that uh, I'm sure he was believing the people surrounding him. Where is his mind right now on, uh, on Ukraine, on Zelensky? on his utter failure to to achieve the objectives he set out in the beginning? Well, I think I'm sure that his mind is in survival mode because he understands how cruel the system is again and that he could be eliminated at any point. So I'm sure he is in, you know, some kind of survival and preparation mode of, of protecting himself. But look, Putin was fed lies. Again, this all stems to corruption. Putin, you know, cultivated three or more political parties inside of Ukraine over the past few decades. And honestly, it started before Putin. It started immediately after collapse. He, you know, controlled, Russia controlled, or at least their security services controlled, you know, most of the media inside of Ukraine that fed Ukrainians propaganda for the past several few decades uh, via the oligarchs. So Putin, again, was fed lies from the oligarchs that he controlled inside of Ukraine, who told him that we will no problem, you know, because everybody wants to see the money flow continuing. Yes, yes, we have everything, you know, secure. We're going to, you know, grab the administration buildings and we're going to this and you know, where we just need enough for a uh, military backup to quell the protest. And if you look, I mean, you're in military, you have a better understanding, way better than me. If you look at the amount of forces they even sent, you know, for Ukraine, Ukraine is the second largest country in Europe. I mean, I don't think 190,000 or 150,000 that cross the border into Ukraine is enough to take down a country that's the second largest in Europe. I think those forces were more to quell protests as, you know, the, the traitors inside that Putin has cultivated and Russian security services have cultivated as they take the country from within. So that plot failed. And now, I mean, he sees his military, you know, is, is, is uh, basically a joke because of the corruption to the point that now they're arresting senior leaders for, you know, various bribery charges and corruption charges. Um, so right now he, he sees that he's at the end of the rope. Uh, for me, I think he understands very clearly that he's not going down into, into Russian history books, which is the most important for any leader. I mean, they want to have, you know, a good place uh, in the Russian history books and statues after them. I mean, this is exactly what he's been calculated everything, Ukraine, Belarus, and then he, they had other plans to take Moldova and, you know, kind of start reinstating the Soviet Union. So he sees that's not going to happen. 
And um, he sees that if anything, it's uh, he's uh, you know, I mean, how is Russian history going to write about him as a failure, as a leader who you know, leader quote unquote who had to grovel to Iran for weapons? I mean, Russia's second largest military, like there, Putin is at Iran's knees, begging for weapons and has full of fighters. So I mean, you know, I personally think that that he's at the end of the road. He understands, and now he's frankly just in survival mode to try to secure as much as he has. Do you worry that that may lead him to act rashly or even irrationally when up until this point everything seems to have been done, albeit in an information vacuum, but, you know, with with this at least rational drive to conquer um, so not to use nukes or something that would provoke the kind of regime-ending response. Uh, are we approaching a threshold where that consideration goes away? Well, I think, um, you know, as far as with Putin, he has nothing to lose. He's, what, 71 now, so he's, you know, not concerned about his life as far as if he were to go down, you know, using nuclear weapons. So I don't think there's anything holding him back because at least he would be framed as fighting the West. I do think that there are people around him who are concerned, and like I said, Russia's security services ultimately control the country. For, you know, before Putin, they controlled Yeltsin, they controlled Putin, they controlled Gorbachev, they controlled, well, in Gorbachev, we saw the shift, again, over Afghanistan, that was, you know, a driving factor of the collapse of the Soviet Union because of the long Soviet-Afghanistan um, war and the heavy losses the Soviet Union took. But I um, do think that, you know, security services, see, they're at a dead end, too. I mean, Putin in, what, now nine months has literally disrupted 20 years of operations for them. Their agents, for the most part, are hiding underground in Europe and U.S. They're being exposed you know, U.S. law enforcement, the FBI, Treasury is like pouring through every company, going through all the bank accounts, monitoring, you know, any kind of irregular activity. You have the same happening in Europe. Russia's disinformation, even though it still continues, I mean, at this point, it's laughable because even like, you know, the average American who never even paid attention to Russia hears something, they're like, oh, this is, you know, fake. And, and like, even they're not falling for it, like, for instance, as what happened in 2016 and 17 and the disinformation we saw. So, I mean, even dis disinformation operations are weakening. UCRT has been shut down, um, Sputnik. Um, across Europe, I believe in U.S., and those are huge spy hubs because, uh, first of all, you know, that's, uh, in, like, their uh, RT and Sputnik are an a part of their intelligence services, and it's also cover for a lot of their um, intelligence agents because they, you know, use the cover just like in Soviet days as, as journalists. Um, all the embassies are under scrutiny, and the most important, the oligarchs are locked away because oligarchs were able to, you know, buy Western politicians 
with their wonderful yacht parties and you know and, and all the decadence now they can't do this anymore and, and even the european politicians who were cultivated and u.s politicians by rush over the decades they can't freely you know come out and express all their loyalty you know and for russia they still put out this information but now it's just you know like people look at them like okay you 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 uh, like work for the kremlin so with that said, I think it would be from within. I think honestly that security services, you know, they're, they're at a dead end. And that's not even to mention the economy. I mean, what's happening inside of Russia economically is, is getting worse by the month. So I think that whatever Putin wants to do, I still do think there are rational players, particularly in security services, who want to preserve even some sort of framework of the system. So like after the Soviet Union, they you know, can go under and then come back and, and, and strengthen the system again. The last time we spoke, you described the oligarchs as almost completely dependent on Putin. And, and we had another guest who described the system as an inverted pyramid with Putin at that that fulcrum point or that balance point at the bottom, and, and that if he goes away, everything is is lost, and that does not inspire confidence that there's going to be a a movement to get rid of him, even if it's inside the security services. Do you do you disagree with that? Do you think there is more to gain from a system that has grown dependent on him than, than there is to risk. Discover the Ozempic Zone. Ask your healthcare provider about Ozempic. Yeah, absolutely. Because if he goes, all the oligarchs go with him and, and you know, the whole leadership and defense ministry and all the agencies, um, the state-owned uh, institutions. So, no, I believe that if he goes, it will disrupt. I, the system will still be there. The system needs to be broken because the system ultimately, I do believe, is the security services. I mean, they put Putin in what in uh, in 98 or 99 they had a meeting and decided that putin was going to be you know the one that they're going to put into power if you remember back then he came in i mean he literally he couldn't speak he looked like a thug from like a saint petersburg thug he wore oversized suits that the media used to laugh, like, what did he borrow, Yeltsin suits? Like, I mean, it was just like, you know, he was not polished. I think even Berlusconi from Italy, like, sent his advisors to teach Putin how to, you know, be more polished and how to speak with the media and whatnot. Yes, over 20 years he had to cure the system, but at the same time, at the end of the day, the KGB or the FSB slash SBR, they still want to survive. And if he has taken them to a dead end, they will make sure that they can do everything they can to ultimately preserve the system. And there is no loyalty in Russia. Putin, his mentor, uh, Anatoly Sobchak, who was the dep who was the mayor of St. Petersburg, he is the one who, you know, helped make Putin. Putin, I mean, it was, you know, the longest investigation, at least by opposition media outlets in the 90s. So Sobchak, when Putin, you know, was campaigning for election, Sobchak came for dinner 
and and then uh, Putin sent them off to campaign, like you know, in a, in, in one of the regions that was further away from Moscow, and he died from a heart attack. And then his bodyguard died within days, also from a heart attack. So there is no loyalty inside of Russia today. You know, if things are going well. The leaders and, and everyone around Putin, you know, is celebrating and thieving and, and, and securing their own assets. When things start to go, they will turn on each other. And we're seeing it. I mean, we see what is happening between security services, uh, even within the security services. You've seen, you know, FSB fighting with GRU. Prigozhin, who is head of Wagner Mercenaries, which is an intelligence arm, of uh, defense ministry fighting the defense ministry. Kadyrov, who is the head of Chechnya that is loyal to Putin, criticizing Putin, criticizing Russia's defense minister Shoigu. So you already see the like underground boiling of these tensions, and it's only going to spill over more. And I mean, Russia is not going to win. I mean, we already see Russia will not win. Even if they use a nuclear weapon, this will do nothing. This will just be out of spite. It's not going to change anything on the military field. They're not going to suddenly gain advancements. The only thing they're going to do is make a certain portion of the land unusable and kill mass civilians and basically cross a threshold that the West will, you know, even, it'll be even harder for the West to, to bring them back in, you know, within the next several years or decade or whatever it is. So strategically, even if they do pull the trigger and use a nuclear weapon, it's not going to change anything. And again, you're the military, you know, expert. You know, you you understand yourself that that, that wouldn't help Russia's military advance. Well, a lot of the strategic planning of Russia just flies in the face of history. And let's look at the attacks on infrastructure as the latest example. Anyone who, who studies uh, that kind of thing from, from history in World War II is probably the best example. Those kind kinds of attacks, I'm thinking about the Blitz and the, uh, the Battle of Britain, they, they don't break the morale of a of a dedicated enemy they actually strengthen it and for someone who is supposedly as strategic and wily and cunning as putin it's just striking that he makes such uh such such obvious strategic mistakes well, again, I don't think he's strategic. I don't think he's ever been strategic. He just took hold of all the security services. And, I mean, he lives in, in, in his own world. Perfect example, when they decide to attack our elections in 2016, Putin comes from the mentality that once you put someone at the top, and, again, this is from KGB's mentality, the way to gain control of the system or of anything is from the top. They put him into the top. He put his people into the top of all the, you know, uh, state-owned entities and whatnot. So when Putin, um, you know, when he grabbed security, when he attacked our elections in 2016, he has the mentality that he thought Trump was going to be, you know, going to the White House and collapse the whole system. And that's it. And that our system will collapse. 
that you know with us we are known to to have outrage uh, over issues but then we're also known to quickly move on to the next thing so you know a lot of people are are short short-sighted and short-minded in u.s here putin didn't expect a resistance building against trump that lasted for you know, years. They, he didn't expect that Trump wouldn't be able to control Department of Justice because it is such a bureaucratic machine that, you know, good luck changing a light bulb, forget, you know, actually um, erasing an investigation or doing anything, you know, in favor of Russia or of Trump. So, but when Putin, he, in his, when he planned it, he planned it as how it would be in Russia, because for him, if someone is a problem, he orders them to be killed. If someone is creating an issue in one of the state-owned entities, he orders a fake, you know, corruption charges, has them jailed, removes them, and puts someone else in. So for him, inside of Russia, because their system is so different, it is much easier, and it is hard for someone who lives in that mentality to understand the mentality of, for instance, the United States. So, yes, did his plan short-term work in the United States? Did he, you know, manage to successfully install Trump? Did he manage to cause chaos in the United States and, you know, that we haven't seen for several decades and, and deep divisions? Yes. Is this going to be long-term? No. United States will survive because the United States has gone through worse. We will survive. But when he was planning it, he envisioned something else. And that's it. And even with the media, Putin understands, you know, when he went into power, he took control of the media immediately because the way to control the public is through the media. When Trump launched his campaign, he immediately started attacking the media. Fake news, you know, regardless what it is, if it's something that is against him or against Russia or against one of the policies, it was fake news. Can Trump take over the media? No. This is the United States. Good luck taking over, you know, the media. He wasn't successful. Maybe uh, some of the media outlets, you know, favored him, but he wasn't successful to take control of the full media and the full information space. So, I mean, on paper, what looks good on paper inside of Russia is not practically what happens when it's actually being played out. There's this undercurrent of admiration within the Republican Party for for Putin, for Russia. Occasionally it boils to the surface as when Ted Cruz admired the, that old Russian military recruiting video. It has been subdued, but do you worry that that, that sentiment, that strain of admiration for authoritarianism might present a, a real danger uh, should the the Republicans regain the White House. How worried should we be about that? I think we should be worried, extremely worried. I'm definitely a little more calm, you know, since midterms. But I think we should be worried because, again, America will survive this. You know, but we should not have one full political party that is okay with authoritarianism. And regardless, even though we've seen, a, you know, them a little bit, you know, less vocal about disrupting our system, 
uh, over the past year, and now they're actually, you know, suddenly like in, in this faux outrage that Trump attacked the Constitution, which he's been doing since day one. He doesn't even know what a Constitution is, but Trump has authoritarian tendencies. I think we should be very worried as far as not that we should panic, that we should continue being engaged in our democracy. We should continue making sure that we pick good candidates, that we are involved in local elections, that it's not just picking the White House, that it is, we see the importance of the state houses, we see the importance, my goodness, of the, uh, the school boards. You know, who thought 10 years ago that, you know, making sure that you have a good school board is going to make a big difference in our democracy. And we see it now. So I think what the past several years, do I think we'll ever fall into authoritarianism? Now, if we continue being active and engaged in making sure that our democracy is for the people and by the people and that we are doing everything to secure our democracy, I don't think we'll ever see authoritarianism, but we do need to figure out this undercurrent, why it is there. And again, a lot of it has to do with Russia, because this really started in 2007, because when Obama was running for election and gaining strength, Russians took notice of the divisions on social media over Obama, the racism towards Obama. When Obama won, I mean, you had Americans inside of America burning effigies of Obama. I haven't seen scenes like this, you know, since, since Iraq, when Iraq, Iraqis were burning books, you know. That's when the Russians got active in our society. This is when they sent their advisors to start moving in and making inroads with the Republican Party. This was around 2007, 2008. Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, they, Prigozhin, who's head of, you know, Wagner Mercenary, is also at the same time, you know, with running a troll farm, uh, which was a huge disinformation operation to push, you know, divisive uh, messaging and disinformation and fake news and everything that you could think of. Trogosian's entities were assisting in, I believe, 2012, helping push and amplify the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. So this is something that we need to make sure that we need to cut all foreign actors out, and that's for our intelligence agencies, to secure our information space. And as people, we need to be engaged and continue just, you know, because Biden has the White House, or even if we win the White House in 2024, it doesn't mean things are all well. And we took that as Americans for granted until it took 2016, where, you know, I took it for granted. I'm like, I'm in America. This is the safest country in the world. When I saw what was happening, you know, over the past several years, I'm like, whoa, like, my God, did I get a wake-up call? How important it is that we have to focus and be engaged in our own democracy. Well, we're going to have to end it there, Olga. Thank you so much, as always, and, and thank you for your vigilance on this. Uh, appreciate all you do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching this episode of Burn the Boats. I've got a quick favor to ask. If you haven't already, click the link below to the podcast page and leave a five-star rating on iTunes. It's amazing how important those reviews are in growing shows like this and getting our message out. Thanks for the help.
Our blue wall stopped the red wave and election deniers got denied election. That's why we're celebrating with the new Democracy Prevails team. We've got lots of work to do, but we should all be proud that when democracy was tested, democracy prevailed. You've earned this. Don't wait. Get yours right now at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com.